Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome to the Everyday Nonviolence Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Sandberg. In this episode, we will hear from two guests. The first is Paula Palmer, the co-director of Toward Right Relationships with Native Peoples, a program of the Friends Peace Teams. She created and facilitates workshops teaching both adults and middle and high school students about the role Quakers played during the era of Indian boarding schools. Our second guest is Alana Street-Stewart. Alana is a member of the Presbyterian Church USA's Restorative Actions Core Team. Restorative Actions is a local initiative that invites predominantly white churches and affiliated organizations to take a leadership stance, opposing racism and racial privilege by voluntarily returning wealth accrued from systematic inequities back to Afro-American and indigenous communities. Paula, thank you for joining me today. So you've done some pretty extensive research about Quaker boarding schools and the Native populations. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved with this research? Well, I began working with Indigenous peoples when I lived in Costa Rica from 1973 to 1993. That dates me, doesn't it? But since that period of time of working with Indigenous peoples in Central America, when I returned to the United States, I continued working as a staff member of the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, where I first really started learning about Indigenous people in my own country, because like everyone else, I learned very little as I was going through school here. So that was the beginning of my learning process here in the U.S., Then I worked internationally, again, with Indigenous people for about 17 years as director of a nonprofit organization called Global Response. We responded to requests from Indigenous communities that were dealing with environmental threats. And then about 10 years ago, I experienced what Quakers call a leading to first learn myself and then help other people learn about the doctrine of discovery and its ongoing impacts in Native communities. And I guess maybe more importantly, the ongoing impacts of the doctrine of discovery on those of us who are not Native, but whose mindsets, thoughts about ourselves, thoughts about what's right, thoughts about what's legal, have been shaped by the doctrine of discovery. So my main concern was on how we who are not Native have been influenced and continue to be influenced by these ideas about, essentially, about white supremacy and about sort of this kind of notion that it was inevitable, which kind of translates to its right that the European American population spread across this continent and took almost all of the land away from Native peoples. And our country has continually justified that. So how do we reassess our own history? And what does that mean to us now? 
what does it mean to all of us, to non-Native people and to Native people. So I was engaged in this work in this project that's called Toward Right Relationship with Native Peoples, um, which I co-direct with a Native American woman, Geraldine Dakota, who is Turtle Mountain Chippewa. So in that context, I was learning about the indigenous boarding schools and learned, and this was you know, probably eight years ago now, learned that the Native American people who were forming the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, it was in its nascent years or months when I was in these conversations about eight years ago, they were saying that the churches had participated with the federal government in the policy of forced policy and practice of forced assimilation of native children by means of the indigenous boarding schools. And they thought the churches needed to do research ourselves about the roles that we had played during pretty much 200 years of what is euphemistically called Indian education, (laughs) educating Native American children, which sounds like it was a favor to them. And of course, the story is much deeper and more disturbing than that. So anyway, the people who were beginning to form the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition suggested that the churches, for one thing, could be very helpful in influencing federal government policy about Well, their intention was to create a commission to study the impacts of the indigenous boarding schools, which now has happened, but at the time was a faraway dream. And they thought that the churches could be very influential in Congress, but only if the churches had done this work ourselves. If we had taken a look ourselves, all of the denominations that had been involved in the operation of indigenous boarding schools. But they felt that if we did that work ourselves and committed to actions stemming from a new understanding of that history, that then we could be very helpful in urging Congress to establish a commission to study the ongoing impacts in Native communities of the, of the boarding schools. So I just said, well, I'm a Quaker. I could look into this for Quakers. I was pretty naive about what that might mean. But I did commit to doing that and then spent a semester as the Cadbury Scholar at Pendle Hill in the Quaker libraries at Haverford and Swarthmore Colleges, reading everything that I could from Quaker records on what our role really had been. Did you think those records, did they appear to be fairly complete? I know that some organizations are better record keepers than other. Did you find any big gaps that you couldn't explain in the records there? Well, there was nothing, there was no section of the library on the Quaker Indigenous Boarding Schools. <laughs> That's, you know, it, it had been a long time since I had worked in libraries. And of course, at both of the Swarthmore and the, and the Haverford libraries, they were in the process of digitizing a lot of records. But many of the records I was most interested in were not digitized. There were boxes, for example, that carried the journals and letters of Indian agents, Quakers, who had been employed by the federal government as, quote, Indian agents. They managed the reservations in Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma for a decade or two, at least. 
And so there were boxes of these personal documents of these Quakers who had participated in the management of the reservations and also of teachers and supervisors of the Quaker schools themselves. And that's really what I was looking for, more than a statistical record of this many schools, this many students, this many blah, blah, blah. I was more interested in learning what Quakers were thinking, how this era of Quaker involvement in the forced assimilation of Native children, how Quakers thought about that how they were led to taking a leadership role among the different denominations and what they hoped to accomplish and how they felt about it over time. I was also, of course, looking for direct quotations of Native people, who, especially those whose children were attending the Quaker schools And the children themselves who attended Quaker schools, I was able to find some letters that children in the Quaker schools wrote to their teachers once the teachers had returned to, in most cases, Philadelphia or other large Quaker communities. Because I wanted to sort of pair the thinking of the Native people who were involved, many of them entirely against their will involved in this process of forced assimilation. Pair that with the writings of the Quakers. There were a lot of Quaker journals at that time, too, and we're talking about uh, that period of time. There were Hicksite friends, there were Orthodox friends, and there was a lot of publication going on about, about this issue specifically, as well as theological issues and other issues of the day. But this question of what to do about the, well, it was almost always phrased as the Indian problem, what to do about the, quote, Indian problem. And the Quakers were very much embarked, as, as were the other denominations, as was the federal government. The project was called over and over and over again in these documents, a project of, quote, civilizing and Christianizing the Native people. And that really was the shared project of the denominations, the Christian denominations, and the federal government. When did these schools start opening? Do you know what year? The first boarding school that I learned about was actually started way before the federal government became involved in this. It was started in New York at the invitation of Corn Planter, who was a Seneca chief who invited Quakers to establish a small school for both boys and girls in New York. And he felt that because their lifestyle had been so altered and impacted and essentially destroyed by meaning their hunting grounds and and their way of life had already been so impacted by white settlement, they needed their children to learn to speak English, and they needed their children to learn farming because they were not going to be able to continue to live the way they had lived for many centuries. So the first schools were created at the invitation of the Seneca chiefs. They were divisive in the Seneca community, and they were on and off, on and off, on and off over many years. But the longest-running Quaker indigenous boarding school 
came about then in the mid-1800s, the Tunisasa School was really institutionalized. It grew to be a very large building with many students and many Quaker teachers. And it became the longest running official Quaker indigenous boarding school. It ran for, I think, 86 years and was only laid down by Quakers in, uh, I think it was around 1935 or something like that. So one thing I want to say here is the Quaker involvement in, quote, Indian education has been different over time. What Quakers were doing changed. So initially in New York and in Ohio specifically, the schools were started at the request of indigenous leaders for the reasons that I specified. The federal government got involved in this with the passage of the Civilization Act in 1819. And at that point, the federal government started paying all the different denominations who were, like Quakers, already running some schools. They started offering payment to support those schools. And so the federal government operated schools through the denominations starting in 1819. The federal government didn't start operating schools of its own until Carlisle was established in 1890. So the churches were doing this. They were the people who were operating the indigenous schools until 1890. And that's why the churches have such a big responsibility at the suggestion of Quakers. Grant started naming representatives of the different denominations to serve as employees of the federal government as, quote, Indian agents managing the different reservations. The reason Quakers suggested that was because there was so much corruption among the agents who were assigned to manage the reservations as they were being established. And so Grant divvied up the reservations by the different denominations. The Quakers were assigned the management of the reservations in Nebraska, Kansas, and and Oklahoma during the Grant administration. So that's how those divisions came. And I haven't ever seen a map exactly of how that was laid out, but almost all of the different denominations were similarly assigned responsibility for reservations in different parts of the country. You know, you start wondering, well, what does this division between church and state, (laughs) weren't they thinking about that? But But I guess the federal government was very happy to let the churches do this work. And and because of the Christianizing aspect, the churches were eager to do it. So then what prompted Quakers to stop running these boarding schools? From my reading, the teachers themselves felt that they had failed. They failed because they complained that the children, after they were in the Quaker schools, for a period of time, three years, five years, six years, what did they do? They went back to their communities. They went back to their families. A lot of the schools started as day schools. Quakers converted them to boarding schools because they wanted to have more control over the children. They wanted to have greater separation between the children and their families because they wanted the children to give up their languages and and their cultural practices and their identities. That was clearly the goal of these boarding schools. But even then, they felt that they had essentially failed. 
they talked about the girls going back to wearing the indigenous dress and wearing their hair in, in the indigenous ways. And so most Quakers began supporting the idea of the federal government establishing off-reservation boarding schools where children would be taken extremely far distances. Alaska children taken to Carlisle, children from the Diné and Lakota, Kickapoo, and every other place around the country taken to places like Carlisle in Pennsylvania. And Quakers really supported that change because they agreed that the children need to be kept from the influence of their families. And I saw an exhibit that was so disturbing at a small museum in Baltimore, the Baltimore Indian Center had an exhibit where they showed material produced by Carlisle, where I will say Quaker teachers taught. These materials from Carlisle showed that the teachers were counting on and really grooming, especially the girls who were students there, to go back and Christianize and civilize it. This was pretty much still the same thing. Their own families, their own mothers, their own grandmothers. Just really so, so horrible to realize that the position that actually throughout this history that they were putting these children in of first rejecting their own languages, their own cultures, their own families, and then trying to convert them to this other way of life that had been imposed upon them. It was extremely painful to read some of this material. I can't imagine the damage it must have done to those poor kids. Well, and to their parents and their grandparents who lost them. You know, in Australia, they call this the lost generation. And the, and it really was a lost many, many generations because this policy continued for so long. And then the damage was done going forward because the children had been raised in institutions apart from their family. They may have been well cared for in terms of giving given solid meals or may not have been well cared for. But even if they were well cared for in, in the sense of physical safety, they did not experience growing up in a family. We know now from the testimony that we've heard in primarily in Canada, but also in the in the US testimony of of the physical abuse, sexual abuse of children. We know the consequences of that for those children who survived those horribly punitive, repressive, oppressive experiences as young people. They are much more likely to repeat that behavior as they become adults and and have their own children. So this is what is meant by multi-generational trauma or transgenerational trauma, that this boarding school experience reached behind to their parents and grandparents who lost them and forward to their children and grandchildren going forward into the communities, the Native communities today who are living among us today and who continue to experience these impacts. Is there anything else that I've forgotten to ask that you wanted to touch on or anything else that you would like to say about the subject? 
Thanks for offering that. One thing is, it's important to know that boarding schools weren't the problem. Quakers, at the time that they were establishing boarding schools for Indigenous children, also had boarding schools for their own children. There's nothing wrong with boarding schools. There, there are some Native nations today who operate boarding schools for, for good reasons. So that's not the problem. Teaching English to children was not the problem. The children needed to learn English. That Their parents, that was one thing that their parents understood their children needed to learn, given the situation they were living in. So there wasn't anything wrong with doing that. What was wrong was this policy of Christianizing and civilizing and forcefully assimilating, the intention to forcefully assimilate these children into a a culture that was driven really primarily by white supremacy. So that's what was wrong (laughs) in what the Quakers became involved in. And I guess that then the other thing that I would say if if Quakers and others are asking, what would be things that would be useful to do now? One thing is to support the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, which is based in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I think there are many ways that individuals and, the, and meetings can be supportive of the really important work that's being done. Also, to I, I haven't looked to see whether Minnesota's Congressional representatives and senators, whether they have signed on to the legislation that was proposed by Sharice Davids and Elizabeth Warren to create a commission. Uh, They're calling it a truth and healing commission on the Indian boarding schools. That legislation is going to be put through the congressional processes this year and needs the support of representatives in the House and and in the Senate. So that's something that Minnesota people can be working on. And then I think when people think about reparations, one thing that these Quaker schools intended to do was to eliminate Native languages. And so I think one very direct form of reparations that Quakers can consider is supporting indigenous nations that are working to revitalize and teach their own languages to their young people. It's been shown that language revival and cultural and ceremonial teachings offer the best support for Native children today who are very susceptible to suicide. As we know, Native children have rates of suicide much greater than any other population in in our country. And the stresses that they are under are are very intense because of, of this experience of transgenerational trauma. So programs that Native people themselves are offering for suicide prevention, for sort of rites of passage um, into adulthood, and for language and culture revitalization, these are programs that I would hope Quakers would support financially. Thank you for your time, Paula. Thank you, Diane. Now I want to bring in Alona Street Stewart to the conversation. 
As mentioned, she's a member of the Restorative Actions team of the Presbyterian Church. Alona, it's good to speak with you today. First, can you tell me more about the Restorative Actions core team? Well, the Restorative Action team has been working together now for a couple of years. The initial gathering was through the Synod of Lakes and Prairies, which is a governing body of the Presbyterian Church USA, and I'm the Synod Executive. Our treasurer for the Synod, Jim Kuhn, is also a member of Oak Grove Presbyterian Church. And after we had had several conversations about the issues of white supremacy and the economic impact on American Indian and African American communities, Jim was engaged in conversations with uh, one of the pastors at Oak Grove Presbyterian Church, Jermaine Ross Allen, an African-American seminarian student. And they were talking about these issues of inequities in wealth and the transfer of wealth. And of course, that continued to bloom into gathering more people in these conversations. This team is very broad in the understanding that we all bring to the issues of economic equity and the denial of the opportunity to transfer wealth for African-American and American Indians. The team focuses on a surrender of income that's based on the portion of wealth that's attributed to racism. Um, And if you look at those calculations, it is about 15 to 16% of the income and the, the wealth within a white household. Over time, what we're saying is, can we surrender, ask people to surrender those dollars so that they could then be provided to these two specific communities? And that's really after the two years, that's what we've been working with, with the National Presbyterian Foundation, uh, one of the trust funds and attorneys, establishing two trusts that will be managed by African-American and American Indians. And it's specifically for efforts or initiatives that they feel should be funded. We'll step out as Presbyterians as we move on to this. So that's a big picture. Um, And we've been sharing this information all around, not only the denomination, but here in the cities. And considering the conversation within the larger national discussion of reparations, but reparations is such a big scale And it is something that our government needs to be involved in. And of course, as an indigenous person, I live in that world where some things are federally um, involved. But what we're saying is our restorative action piece is a narrower focus. It is about being able to surrender this wealth within church councils, congregations, sessions, our denomination, and make those dollars available. We are excited to be able to have accomplished what we've been able to accomplish. There's a curriculum being designed and working with a lot of organizations where we've said, can you be part of this? You know, help us really shape this. It's not just the the trust uh, as a fund that has to be established. It's trust as relationships, of course, that need to be established. So people like Jennifer Harvey sprinkled the seeds long ago. Others 20, 30, 40 years ago. This conversation about reparations has you know, been around for more than a century, actually. And it is now, with the terminology that we're using, 
we're able to say, this one isn't going to go away this time. We really do need to address it. So you guys aren't just a local organization. You're kind of spread out throughout the country, more of a national group. Well, everyone on the team, of course, is primarily here, although Jermaine, as you know, a graduate student, he's actually living in Puerto Rico right now while he's working on his graduate studies. Molly is one of our national staff people. Our denomination's national offices are in the Louisville area. But we've we've addressed this as a way to say it's not just specific here to the Twin Cities. Like with most emerging initiatives, we have to be conscious that you can't immediately move from the dream or the idea to a larger perspective. You really have to keep in mind what it is you're capable of doing. And I think that's what we're also being very conscious about. So we're engaging in those national conversations and still saying this is what we're doing here. Down the road, what would be in a perfect world? What would you hope to accomplish? Well, once these funds are established, um, these two trust funds, working around the effort to say, okay, in accounting practices, how do you establish a trust fund, one for nonprofits and one for individual groups that may not be nonprofits? Beyond that is to be able to have the fear that people assume that it means you're taking something from me. And giving that to someone else who may not be deserving of that. Well, that's the basis of the issues of white supremacy, that there's an assumption that, you know, the people who have made it possible for wealth to be acquired, stolen land, stolen labor, that somehow they're not worthy of receiving the same benefits. But when we look at what that has meant over time, and of course, all property in the United States was Native property, Native land at one time. So The fact that, you know, there were these guardianships and trusteeships established by the government and that churches were complicit with it. Our institutions were complicit with that. You know, when you can sit people down and say, let's let's take away these fears that you have. Let's really address the issue of how uh, financial assets are acquired and who was denied that based on policy. It wasn't that the characteristics of the individual meant that they weren't worthy. There were policies that prevented them from being considered to be a direct beneficiary of something they've produced. Can you give any specific examples of those policies? Well, of course, you know, what's maybe been in the paper more recently is some of the issues of the the redlining around, you know, real estate matters, who could live in certain neighborhoods, who could, you know, reside as a neighbor in a neighborhood. And what do we do when we recognize that for many people, your house has tended to be, you know, what you want to be able to transfer onto your next generation, your children. So the value of that when you sell it or maybe they, you know, acquire it over time. With the national uh, numbers that we've looked at, the difference between uh, what white, white households hold in you know, that accumulated those assets, it's about $845,000 difference between white and black and about $916,000 between white and Native people. Because again, as you know, Native people weren't allowed to hold property, whether they were confined to reserved areas or not. In colonial times, you know, they were denied 
the decision-making process to be able to say um, when they were removed, what was happening to that land when they were removed from their homeland. So that's one example. It's around those issues of housing and the acquisition of that to, to support your institutions and your organizations. Another aspect I think of, of this is to be able to say that the assumptions of, let's say, the, the goals of education so that your children would go to good schools in good neighborhoods um, and then go on to college, get good jobs. Well, when you look at that picture and you realize how truncated that was for African-American and American families, that the idea is that education would be denied to you. The higher education goals and skills are still being challenged because of the disparities of who had access to those. And then the decisions around self-governance, being able to uh, self-organize and um, self-develop within communities is also going to be one of the uh, goals within our restorative action so that, you know, even here in the Twin Cities, you have a number of Native American organizations that are saying, you know, let's talk about our own media needs. Let's talk about our own communication platforms. Let's address the issue of, you know, access to land so that we can grow traditional foods. You know, Black farmers and Native farmers, as well as many of our immigrant farmers, you know, they have a different purpose about feeding their community when the Health disparities are often built on poor nutrition. So, you know, you want to be able to say, you know, we should have access also to land to be able to farm and raise crops that are healthy for our people. So those are, I mean, those are realistic things that are actually, you know, happening right now. Yeah. And as an Indigenous person yourself, how has this history of disparities affected you? Oh, everything. You know, I'm, I'm, a, you know, my tribe is back east. You know, we're Delaware Nanny Cook. Um, and in fact, I just got off the phone this morning. I was talking to the chief of our tribal council about some things going on there in Delaware. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. You know, since colonial times, my people were very much involved. You know, we were people of the tidewater. So any ship that came across and any um, access to whether it was the water, hunting earlier, skins that were for sale, um, then the land, the highways, my family personally, you know, that's my people, that's my ancestors. So we've been involved in. And the fact that they were up through my great grandparents era, denied access to owning their own land so I take this very personally. I mean, this is personal history that, you know, I'm, I'm very knowledgeable about. They had to start privately purchasing land and they were very savvy about that by being able to purchase lots of land that were continuous so that, you know, as they were accessing their own land for farming, they could see that they weren't interrupted. And, you know, all across this country reservations now, they're just a quilt work of farmers who you know, rent land from the tribes, but that you typically don't have Native families owning those lands. Well, fortunately, often there were people within a tribe that were saying, that's not how we're going to do this. That's not how we're going to acquire access to our own land. The other things that it's meant for me was that going on to college, you know, I am from the era of 
you know, the war on poverty. So I was an upper bound student. Swarthmore College was the college I was associated with since junior high. But then going on to school, higher education, you know, there were three Native American students when I went to Occidental College in Los Angeles. And that was the era of Alcatraz, you know, um, and then Wounded Knee. People still didn't see Indians. And we still don't. (laughs) You know, people don't realize there are Native people everywhere all around. But growing up, you know, we were often told, and this is no exaggeration, adults would say to us as children, well, what are you? You know, and we'd say we're American Indian. They'd say, well, what are you really? And we'd say, no, we're Delaware Nanticoke. That's our tribe. And people would say, you can't be Indian because all Indians around here are dead. Now, what do you say as a white student if a teacher told that to you? What would your reaction be? Think, think about everything that your family provided to you around your self-identification and the confirmation of where you came from. And for Native children to constantly be told by people that know nothing about Native people, you can't be here because your people are all dead without acknowledging maybe we were complicit in you know their annihilation. Yes, this touches me very, very deeply. And all that colonial history is my people's history because that's where we're from. So no one can say that they care any more about this country than my people because we've been there since the very beginning. I mean, literally in those same regions. So this work that we're doing with restorative action and all the community work I do with Indian education and Indian, you know, the American Indian Family Center and nationally around, you know, self-empowerment for Native people. Yeah, these are our family stories. We don't have to just say this is an academic exercise. This is when we're talking, we're talking our people, you know, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. Could you identify a catalyst for what's kind of brought these conversations up into a more national stage recently? Well, there's one way to look at that. My generation is that seventh generation where many of our ancestors were hoping that we would survive this long, number one. And both for Indigenous people and African-American families, the confluence I think of the the time. So the protection of civil rights, the protection of human rights, access to voting, an appreciation for education in a variety of field areas, you know, skill sets. We're the generation now that are responsible to demonstrate what all that has meant for us. So it's political power. It's a recognition of economic change. It's a recognition that we are willing to collaborate and we collaborate across organizations. So, you know, when the United, when the United Nations has a declaration on indigenous people, you know, in a sense, I'm grateful that I'm growing up in a time and now have grandchildren that will know that internationally indigenous people are meeting and addressing issues of referendums and uh, changes and so, yes, I think it is just it's it's time now because we have arrived after all of those efforts that people sacrificed. Um, and now it's up to us to demonstrate that. What all have you seen being done to address some of the harm that the indigenous communities experienced overall, but also from boarding schools? 
Well, the exposure is really important. And some of that has been possible through technology and access to archived information. Some years ago, I was working with a project with the University of Minnesota to digitize some documents that I had in my office with the Synod of Lakes and Prairies. And these were documents of uh, the journals, which was a Dakota-based newsletter that um, students printed, created and printed in one of the schools in South Dakota. As I was reading through some of those, and these are long, you know, huge leather-bound volumes that had thousands and thousands of pages because they were newsletters and the students were, you know, publishing this. And one of the comments from 1900 from a woman who was beginning to address social work as a science, she said, you know, children come to these boarding schools and they pine away. And then the school is in touch with the families to let them know that their child is sick. But often, if they're sent home, they're sent home because they're dying. And this white social worker who was a teacher, 1900, has said, this is really difficult for the superintendents to report because dying is not part of the curriculum. Think about that. In no other institution do you talk about those students who have gone on through that experience, whether it's K-12 education or higher education, private schools, residential schools, no other place do we see where we call the students survivors. Think about that. You know, I think of my, my uncles who went to Haskell from where they lived, you know, on the East Coast, and almost all of them ran away multiple times, hitchhiked home as young people. We are so concerned now about the protection and the vulnerability of, of young people, juveniles. And you think that you had eras where the government working in complicity with private individuals and churches was kidnapping children, requiring them to attend these schools where their families may have never seen them again. And I know that recently I was looking at the information about uh, from down in the Southwest, I think they were Navajo fathers, almost two dozen of them were imprisoned in Alcatraz because they refused to send their children to boarding school. You know, so the exposure of this information, yes, that's what we need to be doing now. So that's one of the first things. I think the second is to recognize that both with historical trauma uh, that's passed on even to current generations, that the need for mental health services, counseling, grief analysis, ACE, the you know, adverse childhood experiences work, the more that we can recognize that from the tribal communities, you will need people who are equipped to respond to that, both traditional practice and those that are in medical procedures, let's say, or social sciences, that together collaborating, they need to be made available to communities that are willing to address this. In one specific area, we also need to recognize with ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, that that's always been threatened. That's always been threatened in the court because people want to be able to say there was nothing wrong when we took your children from you. And with your 
high rates of out of home placement, it must still be because your Indian parenting skills aren't adequate. No, it's because the people who were observing that never understood what Indian practices would be in parenting in our homes. And so to be able to protect our children through the Indian Child Welfare Act or ICWA would be one of those ways where we need to say, be there as a supporter. If you're going to sign on on an amicus curiae brief, do it with this. Protect Indian children to remain within their communities, especially if there's the opportunity for them to remain with their relatives. And if the issue is there's not enough food in that house, then address the issue of the food. Don't take the children away from their families, their language, their culture, and their traditions. So that's maybe just a handful of things to be able to look at. As we revert some of the matters of Indian education so that Indian people are designing curriculum and designing standards of education, whether it's K-12 or pre-K, let's support those opportunities here in the Twin Cities. You know, we have a Montessori Indian program. There are a number of uh, immersion schools that teach the language to our children. These are all places where people can just step up and support that work. I mean, you don't need a huge platform (laughs) to design the way that you're just going to step in and support them either financially, socially, or politically. What are some other ways that people can get involved to help? Well, get acquainted with what's going on in the Native community. Look at the annual reports of a lot of nonprofits and see who they identify as their supporters and flag those when you see that there is a Native organization. And then go to that Native organization's annual report and see who's supporting them and flag those. Get acquainted with them. Start reading their websites. Read their newsletters. You know, um, attend meetings that maybe they sponsor. A lot of conferences, you know, are, are open. Get to know our people. Indian people are all around and we're doing amazing things. Um, You don't have to just see people, and I hate this word, but the plight of Native people. You know, we really also want to change that narrative and say, look, we have survived. I mean, I have a... The wonderful quote from Walter Sobolov, who was, is past now, but he was an elder, a Klingit elder from Alaska, who also served as a Presbyterian pastor. And he would say to us at conferences, our people survived the ice age. You all can do anything you want. And that is just so inspiring. It's true. And so I think people need to see that there's a a different way to look at Native people, see how we have survived, see all the organizations that we've established and the collaborative work that, you know, we're doing over time. You know, you could go on any website and just say, you know, what are Indian people doing about child welfare? What are Indian people doing about boarding schools? You know, who's working with them in terms of state government, county government, federal government? Who's assigned to particular elected positions? Deb Hallen, you know, get get acquainted with what has supported her to be able to now serve at a national level of this country. But it's it's becoming aware, realizing, you know, start seeing Indian people where we are. Is there anything else that we need to know or anything that we're forgetting to ask? One thing I, I always say to people is join our circles, you know, engage with us, join us, but don't try to occupy the center of attention. You know, 
sometimes what we need to say to people is you're eager to join our advocacy efforts, but then don't start translating that in the way you would solve problems. And don't start translating that into the way that you do capital fundraising. Don't start translating that as if, once again, you're owning our future. Step back from that and realize that American Indian people have ways to describe what we want and how we're going to accomplish that. And it means listening more, being there to support, but not it's so easy to kind of slide into the process of saying, we're going to do this for Indian people. You know, that's, that's not okay in, in any aspect. That's what we have histories of. Um, that's again, that whole colonial aspect of dominating who we are. Learn from us, listen to us, and then join us by invitation. Thank you for speaking with me, Alona. I appreciate the invitation. Take care. I've been speaking with Paula Palmer and Alona Street Stewart. If you'd like to learn more about Toward Right Relationships and the Restorative Actions Core Team, you can find more information about both organizations in the show notes. I'm Diane Sandberg, and thank you for listening to the Everyday Nonviolence Podcast. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.